earlier, first let me qualify. I am Connie C, a compulsive overeater and bulimic in Memphis, Tennessee. And I am so honored to be with you today. I was on the OA birthday party right before this. So I'm like totally inspired to be here with um, each of you. And when Mai said, sometimes people might tie the story into this reading, I thought, mm, I'm not sure where there's a lot of humor and laughter and all that stuff in my story. And um, so I Googled Reinhold Niebuhr and he's the person who also wrote our serenity prayer. And I started thinking all of those words and you know, he was a theologian and all this, which I knew nothing about. So I took the challenge and I gave myself the words that um, as a prompt, that may today be the day I take the heaviness of what happened and let it rest on the wings of laughter. So the background of my story is that um, my disease owned me for at least 52 years of my life. There were times of respite, but mostly there was none. Um, food drove it, the bedevilments had me. I was controlling, manipulative, passive aggressive, didn't care at all about my body used it in any way I could to further my life and, um, and had no sense of maturity regarding my feelings whatsoever. My earliest memories are me as a little four-year-old girl, hair just as curly as it is right now, um, in a home that was very dangerous. It was um, dangerous to eat at the table. If uh, my teeth scraped across the, across the fork room, I, my knife crossed, um, sorry, scraped across the plate I would be banned. So I realized really young that I needed to hide food. So in my room, I kept a box and any food I could get hold of or any money I could steal from my brother's um, coin collection, we had a little store across the street and Mr. Strong would give me extra food and I would put it in there. So binging started before I remembered. Um, eating, I'm, I'm a, a daughter of compulsive overeaters, many generations, I read letters in our history to, to talk about that. Um, it became communion. It was take, eat, this will make you feel better. And that was how I lived. There were also mantras of if you look too good, men will hurt you. Or if you get too fat, you'll be ugly and no one will ever love you. So that was what I started building life on. The trouble was I was very imaginative. I am a poet and poetry started coming into my life very young. And um, and it didn't work. So they figured out ways to numb me. They had special little combinations of um, sugar and salt shaken in a bag, maybe French fries or something, and then a Coke. And I would be knocked out at you know eight, nine years old. The problem was I became morbidly obese by 10 and my eyes couldn't fully open because my cheeks were so big. So I went to a diet club, um, an in-person one. I was the only kid there. I got diamond chips for every 10 pounds I lost and a little pin. And what I see in the pictures when I look back is this little, is this 10 year old, then 12 year old, once I lost half my body weight, my shoulders are drawn in and I am terrified. I was so vulnerable. I had no idea what to do. And shortly my grandmother died when I was 13. And so I decided the best thing to do was to join her. So then I tried to kill myself and it didn't work. Um, so I went back to the food. I'm gonna fast forward through this next part. Um, by 16, I lived in New York City with my mom. She traveled Monday through Friday. I was by myself, it was 1978. Um, I started to take on 
everything I could to get attention. I never realized the power a body could have. Um, at that point, I decided with my disease to make me very thin and lived off of chicken noodle soup and frozen pineapple chunks for a long time. Um, I had no idea what I was doing in that big city. So I just followed along in the late seventies, if anybody was aware in New York were full of, um, not full of, but there was a lot of drugs, a lot of discos and a lot of things that um, started to greatly influence my life. So by college, I was a full, full blown um, bulimic. I um, would take on exercising three, four, five hours a day, separating it out so that no food would ever stay. I had decisions to make to keep supporting my eating disorder or choose to be perhaps a cocaine addict or an alcoholic or any of those things. But my disease was so entrenched that there was no budge. So I am moving along. I finally, um, things got so bad after a pregnancy, um, actually four years of infertility followed by a high-risk pregnancy that the desperation of my disease and now being married to a guy that I had auditioned for marriage, I no more knew how to be married. Um, I had no role models for any of that. And I even at the altar, when we were saying our vows, I silently said to myself at the end, and I pledged to myself to gain no less than 10 pounds and stay 10 pounds heavy the whole time. So I'll never be attractive enough to have an affair. So 34 years later, I still didn't have an affair, but I'm not sure that that's the frame to build a marriage within. Um, when my little girl, Skylar, was 20 months old, I was so far in the disease that if I didn't have my fix and it was a bad day, I started risking her life. And I would park like outside a convenience store and go and stand, maybe y'all have done this before, in front of the shelves, waiting for the magic combo to pop up. The combination of this drug, it was like a pharmacy to me, and this drug and that drug will combine to help me make it through whatever was going on. So that scared me enough that I contacted someone for help, went to Vanderbilt for eating disorder treatment, and I was all in. When I came out, um, Overeaters Anonymous was part of the intensive outpatient program. I came in, I took it on, and I mean to tell you what, I was working some steps. I'm not sure they were these steps exactly, but I was working some steps. And there were 12 of them, and they had these words, but it was still happening outside of me. It was still between me and my bod, not me and my God. And it was about what was happening here. And so then on day 362 of year one, um, when someone I love dearly, been in my life forever, came in and was very drunk, our addictions collided. And he tried to molest me. And all I knew was I need to go to the grocery. And I called my counselor on the way. You know, still, I don't think I had a cell phone. No, no, I had to have a cell phone, but I did because I did call my counselor. And then it was 10, well, another 22 years until I got back to where I am with you today. So um, things continued to get so much worse. I gained um, more than 100 pounds. I do have a picture. Here's one right here. I could have sent this to Rob earlier, but this is where I was. Um, and this is where I was. My weight tended to follow behind me a lot. I couldn't see it. And um, 
And I got back to OA and I found a great meeting. It was 2014 and I was um, two months in and my son wasn't feeling great. And we went to have um, his hands were hurting, got some blood drawn and very long story short, within um, 24 hours, we were at St. Jude and um, we spent um, two and a half years at St. Jude. And he got over a thousand doses of chemo and I tried to hold my own, but this being a disease of isolation, um, I just took on the food and I wish I had had a better foundation, but I didn't. Watching so many children lose their lives, sitting in the ICU, watching my kid almost die over and over and over again. Um, it was all just too much. and. By 2018, so we finished treatment in 2017, the after effects, the side effects. And, and I do want to tell you that um, he's doing great. He's doing well. He's in remission. So I don't want to leave anybody hanging about, about Adam. In fact, if you would like to see my sweet son, um, this is, I'm oh, sorry. I just got a text from the Keys to the Kingdom. This is us um, doing some work for St. Jude. And no one had ever picked me up in forever. So that was a moment when he said, here, let me put you on my back. And I had, um, it felt like I'd carried him. And so to have him carry me, you know, add that to the list of miracles, right? So um, I couldn't handle what I'd been through, watching my kid carry caskets, um, watching, I, you know, I didn't know how to exist without it. The disease got so bad that I just started living at places like fast food places. One day my car, I was there so long and I would listen to talk radio to numb out what the disease was rambling in my head. And because it was chattering, I know y'all can relate to when it's, it's like trying to take over and it did. And I would sit there and I sat there for so many hours one day with my car running on battery that my car wouldn't start. And I was too overweight to get out of the car and too trapped because of the ordering thing was right here. Thank you. The ordering thing was right here by me. And so I had to call a tow truck to be towed out of there. Um, some days I would go from there to two other places and it would be the whole day. And then of course I'd come home and say, and I work. So that's the crazy part is I was spitting all of a sudden between clients, especially on days I did, didn't have clients. And then when someone would say, you know, what do you want for dinner tonight? I'm like, I don't know, I'm starving. And I was dying. So I asked for help from a minister. She sent me to, um, she knows I love silence. And she said, there's this place you can go for a silent retreat for a week. They also treat trauma. So I went and I um, met a woman, Sister Carol. I happen to not be an alcoholic. Sister Carol Riley has a lot of uh, recordings out there on addiction. She's a PhD in spirituality. And I kept saying, it's trauma with what I've been through. And she kept saying, you're an addict. And I was like, but I'm traumatized. I knew if I could get the trauma handled, I wouldn't be an addict. And so that wasn't true. And so she started telling me things like, Connie, your body knows when to sleep, when to wake, when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, when to stop. But I just couldn't, I couldn't believe her. And still, till in that one week, I started living it. So I did, and she connected me to some people through OA, but I still wasn't ready. 
And um, I had gotten a sponsor. I had started listening to meetings every day, but I seem to have one more binge. And I wish I could read it to you. And if there's one thing I can tell you is, if you're still in the food or you still got the memories, make sure you've written down the story of your worst. Because on days when I try to forget or when days when I'm not doing well, I go back and I read the story of my last night's um, binge. And I don't have time to, to share it with you. I'll send it to somebody if you want it. But it talks about how I ate so much that it backed up and it asphyxiated into my throat and spilled into my long, lungs and how much pain was in my throat and wanting to not throw up because of the burn. And um, that wasn't my last binge. That happened to me on the 4th of July in 2018. And, um, and my date of abstinence is on the 19th. And I mean, I'm sorry, on July 9th of 2018, I um, started working the steps like crazy, mostly because by this point I had osteopenia, I was anemic, I was morbidly obese, I was pre-diabetic, the list goes on and on. I will say having lost 100 pounds now that everything is gone except for um, some of the reflux issues that are never going to leave and my thyroid is whacked, but I think it would have been whacked anyway. And um, so I, um, and the systemic yeast infection was closing my throat. So that first month I had to put it all down. I made a list of all of my red light foods, everything that triggered it. I worked with my sponsor and we looked at every single ingredient and my red light foods um, working this program, my hope is that they will stay red forever because Part of the reason I haven't gone back in is that every time I went back in, so I came in and, in and out of LA, I don't know how many times, 17 times maybe, a lot of times. Every time I went back into the river and tried to swim with my disease, the rapids were worse. They were more deadly. And I can't imagine, now I'll be 59 a week from today. I cannot imagine how much my disease wants to help me now because that's its commitment is to help me. And sometimes help me looks like taking me out because it's crazy. And the last, um, there's one person on, on here that's walked this path side by side. And the last five months have been a whole new form of like, oh God, please, you know, like stop. And all I see is that my recovery is forged in steel and I work it like I am desperate and I don't want to go back there, although I know that I could. My disease, I don't know if yours is, but she is a shapeshifter. And one day she appears as a red light food and the next time she might appear as a slice of watermelon or as an avocado or as um, you don't need to exercise, it's okay. So what I do now is I live a life that because being inherently undisciplined, we read about that in the big book, I lead a life of discipline. Um, my alarm is set on automatic timer to wake up at five every day. Not every day, that's not true. And I do my best with it, but five days a week on the weekdays. I get up and the first things I do, I have my clothes laying out so I don't have to think. And I talk to no one until I've had time to talk to my higher power, who I call God or grace. I sit with um, my higher power, but before that, I wash my hands and I look at that water as if I'm being, thank you, as if I'm being baptized again, to start fresh and clean and new. I take my morning medicine I need, some supplements, and I sit down with God. 
And I am so happy to be able to get up. I live with such joy. I live with such gratitude. It is a baffling miracle to walk this path um, without that unlicensed driver called my disease driving me off a cliff every single day. I look at food as fuel. I think about if I was gonna get in a car and come and see all you beautiful souls all over the world, I would not overfill my gas tank because it cannot run with gas pouring over its side. I would put in enough to get me from here to there. What kind of fuel do I need? Am I working out today? Um, you know, how, how am I doing these different things? I meet with my sponsor. Um, I have to constantly change my food plan because I'm getting older and I have been sitting a lot in the last year more than I usually do. My metabolism seems to have changed. My butt's looking different. I call my, my eating program sometimes an anti-gravity program um, for aging. And um, But in here, I move through from that time. I have the time in my journal. I use Insight Timer. I love getting the little stars. It gives me whatever incentive it takes that's healthy to pull me forward. I do a, um, I attend OA meetings most days. I do a nightly review with my um, partner at 8 a.m. Um, Central Time, Monday through Friday. We cover that day before. And I live, and they're always with me. And they say, oh, it's by my bed. I meant to bring it with me. Um, but I started collecting gratitudes when Adam was sick at his sickest place. And during that time, I started writing down everything that um, I am grateful for. And last year, I had 6,000 entries. So I'm almost at the close here. And what I want to leave you with is that I hang out with my emotions now. I did not know them. I did not know them. And at the point when I was doing step six and um, seven, these words came. So I'd like to share them with you. And they were in the lifeline of July 2019. They were published in that. It's called Grounded by Grace. And I, I may get right to the second timer person, but this will take me right out. Narrow path, narrow steps, tight rope strung between mountain peaks formed by stories wrapped in drama about a life lived, overdone. Suspended, I balanced. Righteous, I clung to air no longer filled with oxygen. Between two peaks, I paused, forgetting which way to go next. Liminal space give way to grace when she said, leap but not yet. And I said, okay. She said, would you let me catch you? And I said, why? She said, because you are beloved. And I laughed. Me, beloved? Resentments as deep as the gorge below. Fear so many, they strangled my soul. She whispered, there's room enough within these clouds upon this wind to let them go one breath, one truth at a time. Between two peaks, the narrow path, the loosening rope, began to unravel thread by thread. Weary, my heart heard grace again. I've still got you, always have, always will. Powerless and lost, I surrendered to the wind, the story of the mountains I built, the truth of the narrow path I braved until I couldn't walk it anymore. Leap now, Chris said. Wide arms wait to catch you, to carry you, until your feet stand strong and your back feels the weight of your world lifted off. Hand in hand, I'll walk with you along the broad highway where there's air to breathe. 
With me, you'll never walk along again. Lighter I leapt, landing, grounded by grace. I felt alive for the first time in a long time, eager to live out my days, one breath, one step, one day at a time.